Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Nigel Bigger. Nigel Bigger, who I count a friend and has been uh, with us on this program before, is Emeritus Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. His most recent book is Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure to be back again, John. Now, the many things that someone with your extensive list of qualifications and background could have chosen to do, You've written a book about colonialism. Why? (laughs) And you argue that is not the original sin, as some people say it is, of countries like Britain. So, John, that's that's a good question. Um, And the first thing I'd say is, um, I've been reading, although I'm a theologian and an ethicist professionally, um, my first love was always history, and my preferred reading is history, and I've been reading about, um, in particular, British imperial history for 20, 30 years. And so in, in recent uh, times when um, some people say that uh, the British Empire, for example, was nothing but a litany of racism and economic exploitation and uh, wanton violence, I say to myself, well, it was all those things, but it was also the opposite. So uh, um, part of the reason for writing the book was to um, inform a new generation of Britons and Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders about the whole truth about their colonial past, not just the politically partisan story. So that was one reason. Um, A second reason has to do with the fact that I'm actually Anglo-Scottish. I know it doesn't sound like it, I, I sound only marginally more Scottish than you do, John, uh, but I was, I was born there. And if you get me to say a word like Jerusalem, then it comes out, but otherwise I sound English. Uh, but uh, what that meant was that when the, um, the referendum on Scottish independence was held uh, in 2014, um, I was a, a visceral um, anti-independence uh, uh, person because I, I've lived on both sides of the border and I actually think the UK is is important and valuable, and it's important to keep it together. But I noticed that some um, Scottish nationalists were justifying um, um, Scottish independence as a, as a form of kind of national self-purification in terms of Britain equals empire equals evil, and Scotland's separation from Britain and Britain's disillu- the UK's disillusion would be an act of kind of national self-purification. And again, I thought to myself, well, that's just far too simplistic, and as it stands, it's just not true. And then more recently, uh, um, particularly since um, uh, the killing of George Floyd in 2020 in Minneapolis and the Black Lives Matter movement coming across the Atlantic here, um, um, we've had an obsession with 
colonialism and um, British colonialism in particular. And um, I've noticed that you know, empire uh, has been a feature of human history since almost the dawn of time. Uh, people with non-white skins, Arabs, Indians, Comanche, and others were doing empire long before Europeans did it. Why the obsession with European empires? Why, why the fixation on British empire? And I interpret it as being an assault on the record of the West. So for all those reasons, partly historical, then uh, um, in domestically British political, and then more broadly, uh, international politics, I, I wanted to write this book and to put the record straight. It's a courageous thing to do because we live in such a censorious age. And to defend Western culture seems to be to invite disdain and even cancellation. I understand you even had a bit of trouble with your publisher or proposed publisher. Yes, yes, I did. Um, I was contracted, I was offered a contract to write um, what was then called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Colonialism by Bloomsbury Publishing in uh, spring of 2018. I produced the manuscript at the end of 2020. The deadline was 31st of December. I produced it at two o'clock on the 31st of December. Um, and my commissioning editor um, read it. And in January, he wrote back saying he was uh, speechless with admiration at its rigor and comprehensiveness. He said it was an important book and he predicted it would sell up to 20,000 copies. And then it went into uh, the copy, copy editing process and they produced a cover. But then in March, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury saying that uh, they were going to, to um, postpone publication indefinitely because, to use their words, public feeling is unfavorable. And I, I was told informally they wanted me to walk away from my contract. I, I could go into the gory detail, I'll, I'll spare you. Uh, suffice, suffice to say that eventually um, I, um, um, because I had no other choice, I, 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 uh, I agreed to walk away from the contract um, without any other publisher in sight. Uh, that was in April 2021. Uh, happily, in August 21, uh, William Collins came to my rescue and they published the book in this country and in Australia, I think, in early February, and it came out in uh, Canada and the States last week. Well, I don't know what's happened to the idea that we ought to have public debates, contestability of ideas, attempts to get to the truth of things, but I find it a very, very disturbing development. No, it was, and I, of course, when I realized they weren't gonna publish it, I was uh, momentarily depressed partly for personal reasons, but, but most of all what depressed me was the thought that we in Britain had come to the place where, you know, I, 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 judging by what other people have said of my work, John, I'm pretty careful and I'm pretty thorough, and this topic was really important, and my commissioning editor said it was one of the most important books he'd seen in years, and yet it seemed that this British publisher wouldn't publish it because public feeling was unfavorable. Now, of course, we all know that public feeling is many things. Uh, there are many public feelings, but uh, part of the market, uh, this publisher was, was scared of offending. And uh, what that implied for the future of liberal, a uh, kind of liberal, free, open uh, society in, in this country really depressed me. It's funny the little moments that make you stop and think it's not as straightforward 
as the public mantra might have you believe. Seven or eight years ago, I had occasion to spend some time in Myanmar, one time Burma. I met a very old man there who said, you know, I'm close to the end of my life. I've seen 90 years or so, and only one year of my 90 did I feel safe and free in my own country. And I said, when was that? He said, 1946. He said, before that we had uh, Japanese uh, uh, imperialism suffocating us, the war. 1946, we were liberated and the British ran the place for a year and I felt good and I felt safe. <laughs> and then my own people forced a repressive regime on me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These things are always much more complicated, yes. much more nuanced. Yes. Always a story of good and bad. Yes. And that takes a lot of unpacking. But can I ask you, um, let's be clear what you're talking about. Your book is a scrutiny of our current moral evaluations of colonialism. Yes. What would you describe as the colonialism that you're writing about? And, and, the, and what sort of main countries have you sought to focus yeah. on? So um, let me start with, with empire, first of all, before I talk about colonialism. So empire is, is a, a form of political organization which has existed since the dawn of time, whereby uh, in an empire there, there are many peoples, but one people dominates, roughly speaking. That's an empire. Now, uh, colonies uh, are a form that empire can sometimes take uh, when the dominant people um, um, emigrate to other parts of the world and settle. So uh, you have European British colonists in Australia, you have European British colonists in North America, you don't have European uh, British colonists much in, in India uh, during the British Empire. Uh, so there, there's a distinction between empire and, and colonies. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, and I've used the word colonialism in the title of my book because that's the one that's uh, used in public discourse. But the book itself focuses on the record of the British Empire. Uh, why? Um, partly it's the one I know best. Uh, uh, partly um, uh, it was the largest of the European empires. And it's also the one that um, morphed to some extent into the um, post-1945 uh, American-led international um, order. Um, and so, so when I said earlier that I think that the attack on colonialism, the attack on the British Empire is an attack on the record of the West, that's, that's uh, one reason why I, I focused on it. Um, one of the early claims you, ma you make in the book is that the colonial or so-called colonial project was made up of both good and bad motives. Yeah. No, the common narrative would be that there couldn't possibly have been any good motives. Yes. Um, yes. I'd appreciate your views on that. I'll preface it briefly by saying I not long ago met an Indian scholar who said to me that much of what happened in India was very positive, which is surprising. It's not what young people particularly will ever hear. How can there be good motives? No, indeed, indeed. Yes, you're right. So, so the assumption is that um, empire is always about conquest and oppression and exploitation. Um, but that, that owes much more to theory than it does to historical 
fact. So that's one reason why I prefer not to talk about imperialism or colonialism, because that implies a kind of unitary thing. Whereas, in fact, I mean, maybe in Berlin in 1938, someone decided we're going, we're going to conquer the world. But in the case of the British Empire and most of the European empires, it wasn't like that. It was much more ad hoc, much more responding to circumstance. So um, how did the British Empire arise? Originally, in the 1600s, uh, trade. East India Company is given a, a, a monopoly of trade between England and, and India, and Englishmen sail out to India and establish uh, trading uh, um, uh, bases in, in, in India. Um, then uh, Englishmen also go westward across the Atlantic. Why do they do that? Well, partly uh, because Elizabeth I wanted her, her um, sailors to harass Spanish shipping because the Spanish Empire was threatening Protestant England. So the irony there is the origins of English empire are anti-imperial. <laughs> but uh, to be honest also, um, people like uh, Drake and others were, were hungry for gold. Um, and um, uh, at the time, I don't think they were particularly hungry for land, uh, but they were hungry for gold. So you've got those in the, in the early um, uh, century of the uh, first British Empire, you have trade, uh, anti-imperial national endeavor, uh, private hunger for gold. Later on, uh, in the 19th century, uh, the British, one reason the British uh, uh, um, ever came to rule East Africa was lobbying by humanitarians to suppress the slave, the Arab slave trade. Uh, and some parts of the empire uh, landed uh, in London uh, at the end of wars when they were uh, ceded by treaty. Uh, so, so the motives were really quite various. Uh, yes, they included sometimes greed. Uh, they included sometimes uh, um, racial arrogance, but uh, oftentimes, I mean, all human endeavor uh, uh, um, is a mixture of, of virtue and vice and good motives and bad. Um, anyone reflecting on their own private lives knows that. And imperial endeavor, endeavor was no different. Yeah, we have lost sight of that, haven't we? I mean, we now tend to uh, ascribe virtue to one group versus another group. Yes. In a very simplistic way. You disagree with me, say you're bad, and you're all bad, and I'm all right. And there's, there's no allowing for the greyness in between. And uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I, I speak as a Christian. Um, um, the assumption that um, virtue and vice runs right through the middle of me uh, is uh, one I've long uh, made, and I assume of everyone else that we're a mixture of virtue and vice. It, one, one good effect of that view of the universality of, of sinfulness is that um, when you do me wrong, John, I may be very annoyed, and I may rightly hold you, account for, hold you to account for that, but the fact that I know that I too am a sinner means that my, my um, judgment on you is tempered, because I too am a sinner. Um, and so it, 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 the, the, the sense that unrighteousness is within here as well as out there uh, actually helps to temper conflict between uh, individuals and between political parties and between nations. And frankly, a, a wider awareness of that, uh, that wisdom now might see a greater commitment to a more honest debate about issues of the sort that we're talking today. I think so. Um, now, you say that uh, colonialism can be said to uh, have um, 
a report card that, that shows some positives as well as some negatives. What are the negatives, firstly, as you see them? Yeah, so um, uh, just taking the British Empire, um, for example, uh, uh, on, in the debit column of the imperial ledger, you will find roughly 150 years worth of slave trade and, and slavery from about 1650 to 1807. Um, you will find, uh, not uncommonly, um, um, offensive racial arrogance. Uh, you will also find, um, very commonly, the um, abrupt disruption of uh, social and the, the so social and cultural and economic lives of native peoples in North America, Australia, and Africa. Uh, the reason for that is that the the, the cultural gap between uh, let's say 19th century Europeans with their science and their medicine and their uh, ocean-going ships and their firearms. The culture gap between them and many of the peoples they met was just vast. So, so the, the impact of modernity, which was going to happen one way or another, uh, was, was um, uh, severe. Uh, and the other um, um, major negative um, impact of uh, European um, um, colonial expansion was disease. Uh, Europeans had been, I don't understand these things, not, not being a, a medic, but I understand that because Europeans had domesticated animals, um, they had become immune to diseases that animals can spread. But when they went to North America and uh, not least uh, Australia, uh, they brought with them diseases that native peoples were not immune to, and native peoples suffered grievously. That said, um, um, there is reason to suppose that um, smallpox was introduced to northern Australia, not by Europeans, but by fishermen from what's now Indonesia. So it wasn't just the Europeans who spread disease, and by the way, the disease were not spread deliberately, but it was, it was a tragic evil. Amongst the widely presented arguments that colonialism was, was, was evil, it's of course, that it was racist. But I think you challenge that assumption. It's not so simple. And indeed, you hold up the very interesting illustration of British involvement in Africa to end slavery, which is deeply rooted in the horrors of racism. Yeah. So I, I, I think we, we need to have an adult discussion about what we mean by racism, John. And I, I, there are a couple of pages in my book where I, I lay out what I think racism is. Um, and I, 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 I take it to be, I mean, human beings are constantly in the business of identifying with one group over and against another and thinking themselves, thinking this group to which I belong, this football club, this church, this nation, this race is better than another because it, 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 it makes us feel better <laughs> to, to be superior to other people. It's a very common thing. Europeans did not, did not invent racial prejudice. Um, but I think that's, that's what it is. It's, it, it's, it's denigrating another people, another race, uh, in an indiscriminate fashion, and then assuming that any member of that race uh, shares in whatever bad qualities you attributed to it. And that, it, that I regard, just for the record, is, is ugly and it's abhorrent. But what I don't think is racist is, is making discriminate um, uh, judgments about another culture and saying, well, in this respect, I think that culture is 
scientifically or technologically or perhaps even morally inferior. Um, now, why do I say that's not, not racist? Well, it's partly because you know, when I, as a 21st century Briton, look back on my medieval forebears, you bet there are ways in which I regard our culture as superior to theirs. Uh, you know, we, we don't, thank goodness, uh, hang, draw, and quarter criminals. Uh, we don't burn them alive. Uh, our medicine is superior. Um, our agriculture is superior. So if I can say that about, about my own people a thousand years ago, if I meet other cultures around the world which have similar practices or a similar level of cultural development, I also regard uh, them as, in these respects, uh, inferior. And uh, let's also point out that uh, people who regard, regard themselves as progressive, when they regard, let's say, Christian fundamentalists in, in the southern United States, they regard them typically with contempt. So they regard their progressive culture as superior to, to fundamentalist Christian culture. So um, my view is that needn't be racist, uh, provided you discriminate. You, you're, not, uh, you're not, as it were, indiscriminately rubbishing of another culture. And, and the other important respect is this, that um, it would be racist, uh, uh, as some people toward the end of the 1800s uh, thought, to regard non-white peoples as naturally or biologically inferior. That's to say, not only are they at this moment in time inferior culturally in certain respects, but that's because they are naturally inferior and they will never significantly improve. Um, that view, as I said, was around in the late Victorian period, but it never displaced uh, the earlier Christian view, and this is the view that um, fueled the very powerful and popular uh, movement to abolish slavery, which, which grew, grew, uh, um, gained momentum in the late 1700s, the Christian view that all human beings are basically equal under God, regardless of race and regardless of cultural development. Uh, and uh, that, view, I don't, that, that view is not racist. Uh, the, the worst form of racism, I think, is that which regards uh, uh, members of another race as naturally and permanently and biologically inferior. That's insupportable. I'm often reminded in my own mind of the, uh, the earliest recognised political slogan that was struck by Josiah Wedgwood during the anti-slavery campaign. And you can still see examples of it everywhere. A very intricate, beautifully made bas relief of an African man looking imploringly up. And the slogan underneath says, Am I not a man and a brother? Yes. yes. The insistence yes. that our humanity is common. Yes. And they're not an inferior species. Yes. Yeah, so it was that Christian view that, that uh, you'll find it uh, at the beginning of John Wesley's Thoughts Upon Slavery in 1774. And it was that Christian view that, that particularly through evangelical Christianity, uh, through Methodism, uh, through nonconformist Christianity, uh, really became widespread in England in the late 17, early 1800s. In America, in Canada, New Zealand, in my own home country, Australia, the dispossession of native peoples still widely discussed in terms of um, not only being a terrible thing, but sometimes there's the hint that it was genocidal, that there was the intent uh, to 
wipe out a people. Does a proper reading of the historical uh, record support such a contention that there was somehow a premeditated intention to do away with people on the basis of race? Uh, in my view, no. I mean, the, the, as you well know, uh, the, um, the classic alleged example of genocide was what happened in Tasmania in the 1830s and 40s. Um, the, the Australian art critic Robert Hughes said that was, the, that was kind of the, the one um, um, infamous example of genocide within, within the British Empire. This, of course, is highly controversial. Um, uh, but my view that what, what happened in Tasmania is not fairly described as genocide is shared by Australian historians such as Henry Reynolds and Dirk Moses, uh, who rightly, I think, uh, certainly Reynolds rightly says that we, we need to define genocide uh, as international law defines it, namely as a, a, an intentional and systematic attempt to exterminate a people. I mean, the paradigm of genocide is, of course, Hitler's final solution. You know, very deliberate, uh, state-sponsored, uh, uh, state-organized, and very systematic. That's the paradigm. And nothing like that happened in, in Tasmania, nor anywhere else in the British Empire. That's not to say that there weren't settlers uh, who were so hostile to native peoples that when they encountered them, they tried to kill as many as they could. Um, but from my reading of Australian, New Zealand, um, African and North American history, uh, colonial government uh, never sought to perpetrate genocide. And on the contrary, a colonial government strove to moderate the impact of settlers on natives, particularly in the 1800s, after there'd been this kind of moral revolution in England, and again, evangelical Christianity was, was a major force here. Colonial government tried to moderate the impact of settlers on, on natives and uh, strove to, to, to restrain violence um, and to, to restrain settler violence. Um, so there was, there was no uh, systematic state-sponsored attempt at uh, exterminating a people, although uh, peoples were sometimes annihilated. Um, almost invariably by, by disease. So the, the Beotuk people of Newfoundland in, in what's now Canada in the 1700s disappeared through a combination of disease, uh, warfare with other tribes, um, and the impact of Europeans. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't deliberate. It's an important distinction to make, I think, between uh, the actions of individuals and what was sanctioned by the state and what was not. So I think of a horrendous massacre that happened not far from where I live. Uh, and it was undertaken by a group of highly irresponsible and very nasty stockmen. Yes. The state apparatus, if I can put it that way, slowly and in a pretty creaking way, nonetheless, actually insisted on justice. Yes. And nine perpetrators out of 11 people involved white men were hung for what they had done uh, quite early on. So the state, in a sense, yes. often not as effectively as it might have, but it did seek in that case yes. to insist on justice, to recognise that a white man, and this is the language that was sort of being used at the time, 
who murdered a black man should hang for it. Yes. So I think there's a, isn't there a, a cartoon that Governor Arthur had put about, which was explaining in, in cartoon form to, to Aboriginal people that, that um, there will be equal justice, that if a white man kills an Aborigine, Yes, they, they that's will, right. They too will that's behind. correct. Yeah, but just just on that, um, my my perception is that in Australia and elsewhere, um, if there was something to criticise about colonial government, it was it was too weak. Uh, it wasn't powerful enough to control what was going on. But but then I think we need to remember that um, government in in early nineteenth century Britain was small and weak. Uh, so, so when you've got famine in Ireland, just across the, across the Irish Sea, part of the problem is that the, the government doesn't have the resources uh, to, to deal with that problem adequately. Um, and just in, in terms of personnel, I think around, even as late as the 1880s in Canada, um, you have 1,000 Royal Canadian Mounted Police patrolling um, the whole of, of Canada, 1,000 men, uh, this vast territory. Um, so, so, and I suspect in Australia it was the same story, that there simply weren't, the, the government didn't have the personnel, the army, the police, uh, sufficient to, to control what was going on in the frontiers, but they did their best. Now, you can't talk about the British Empire without considering India, and it's an interesting case. It's a rising superpower. It's becoming the most populous nation on earth. It's a little uncertain in its democracy at times, but it is a democracy. And I often think to myself that it may not have been a democracy if Britain had not in the end shown them what democracy was. The record's not all bad. They could have left a complete shambles and a dysfunctional state. Yes. Um, so what did the British do for, for India? First of all, they created it because when the British arrived in India, in, in the subcontinent in the 1700s, it was a, a mosaic of different states, different princely states, um, speaking a variety of languages. And by the time the British left in 1947, um, sadly, um, British India was divided into Pakistan and India because of, because of religious tensions, but what was left of India was, was a very large unitary state um, in which English was widely spoken, at least at certain levels, so there was a, a linguistic coherence. Um, and so, so uh, insofar as India now is thriving economically, um, the fact that there is a, a common language and a common state and a common market uh, must bear some large responsibility uh, for that. Uh, but also in, in terms of the, the, the rule of, of law, um, I mean, the Indian civil service uh, under the British had a reputation for um, very high integrity. And I don't, know, I don't know to what extent the Indian civil service as it is now has maintained that tradition. Um, but if you want conditions for uh, that are attractive to investors, then the rule of law, um, um, a lack of corruption in government, um, a large common market, and a common language, English helps enormously, is very attractive. So, um, although it's true that you know, the, the, the current um, 
vigour of the Indian economy owes a lot to the abandonment of socialist policies, which the uh, immediate um, um, post-independence Indian governments adopted. Uh, nevertheless, there are things the British put in place uh, that, that provide conditions for uh, a vigorous um, economic life. And it does raise the question, I think, as well, you often hear this story, this line, that the West is responsible for the dysfunctionality of former colonies today. And it overlooks often what those countries or conglomeration of, uh, of, of communities, which India was, I suppose, what they were really like in terms of functionality yes. prior to yes. the involvement of the West. I mean, one of the, the general benefits of imperial authority is that um, it pacifies what would otherwise be... Um, a multiplicity of, of warring peoples. And that was certainly the case in India when the East India Company first began, first landed there. Um, um, Mughal imperial authority had disintegrated and there, there was constant uh, um, civil wars among Indians. And one of the effects of the, uh, um, of the expansion of the rule of the East India Company in the late 1700s was uh, peace. And as a consequence of, of peace, economic prosperity. So um, if one, one person I quote in, in my book, uh, John Malcolm, a Scotsman born about 50 miles east of where I was born. In fact, he, he was a founder member of the club in which we now sit. Um, uh, he wrote, uh, um, he went out to India in, in about 1780 at the age of 13. And in the, around, around 1800, he, he, he wrote about how, um, because of the, the ending of civil war and the imposition of British rule, the peasants were returning to the fields and they were becoming fertile again. Uh, so imp the imperially imposed peace has, has, the, has the, the benefit of allowing economic life to flourish, and, and uh, that was one of the benefits of uh, the imposition of, of British imperial rule in, in India. There's an interesting uh, counterexample in southern Africa when in 1879, the British invaded and, and conquered the Zulu Kingdom. And in order to break up its power, because it was, it was a, a highly militarized society, the British broke up the Zulu Kingdom into about a dozen different little kinglets. And sometime afterwards, the, uh, uh, some Zulu leaders were heard to complain. And they said, you know, you British, you conquered us. We get the right of conquest. Fine, you, you get to rule us. Now would you please do so? Because what you've done is, you, you've come here, you've conquered us, you've broken us up, and because you haven't imposed your imperial authority, we're now quarreling among one another. Um, so, so again, sometimes the, the fault of imperial rule was it was sometimes too weak, um, but when it's, when it's imposed, it has the benefit of, of creating peace and, and uh, as a consequence of that economic pr prosperity. Central to any account of uh, colonialism is surely the importation of missionaries and Christianity to non-Christian lands. What did you discover in your research in this area about the relationship between Christianity and missionaries uh, and um, colonialization? So, so you're right, John, that, that Christianity became important for the empire around the end of the 
1700s, early 1800s, because of the evangelical uh, awakening in England, and that that um, fueled the um, movement for the abolition of slavery, and then it fueled concern for the plight of native peoples in in the likes of Australia and, and North America. So, in that sense, it was it became uh, a central and important um, humanizing feature. Uh, but in one sense, early on, um, contrary to to to, to, to uh, one myth about uh, colonialism, um, um, missionaries were not central to the project because um, colonial officials often uh, uh, found missionaries to be a nuisance. Yes. Why were they a nuisance? Well, because if you allow Christian missionaries into India, for example, and they start to, to proselytize and preach the gospel, well, then, then Indians get upset and the colonial officials then have to deal with, with, the, with the upset. So, in fact, the East India Company banned missionaries until about the 1830s. Um, so, it's not true to say that, that uh, Christian missionaries were simply the, the lapdogs or the tool of, of empire. Far from it. And often you'd find missionaries in New Zealand or um, Africa and indeed Canada um, lobbying the imperial government in London to constrain the, the actions of colonial governments in, in, in the colonies. Uh, so, um, uh, missionaries could be uh, pains in the backside to colonial governments because they were critical and often uh, humanitarian. Um, now, it's, often, it, it's sometimes often thought that um, missionaries pushed Christianity down the throats of, of natives. Well, uh, that wasn't true because missionaries didn't have the power to do that. Um, uh, it is true, sadly, um, for example, in the residential schools in, in Canada where native children were brought so they could learn English and agriculture. Um, it is true that sometimes uh, missionaries uh, were, Christian missionaries were too zealous and too dismissive of native culture. Uh, so there was an element of cultural racism there. Uh, not always, but sometimes. Um, but often native peoples found Christianity attractive. So uh, Ronald Hyam, who uh, was a, uh, an historian of, of the British Empire, writes that in Africa, um, the Christian message of the uh, brotherhood of, of humanity and equality in Christ uh, was naturally enormously attractive to um, people on the African margins, uh, 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 young people, women trying, uh, young women trying to avoid uh, female circumcision slaves uh, and others. Um, and, and so uh, native people sometimes found Christianity very attractive. They adapted it, uh, they adopted it, but they also, you know, what they, what they adopted, they also changed and adapted. So uh, African Christianity found African expression for, for Christianity too. So the, 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 the relationship between Christianity and native peoples was, was a very mixed one. And also between um, colonial authorities and missions was a very mixed one. Uh, but it's certainly not true to think of, of Christian missions as simply a, an extension of colonial opp oppression that's far too uh, simplistic. What do we know about the distinctive approaches to colonization by the different nations that engaged in it? Well, I mean, it wasn't just the British, the French, the Spanish, uh, the Dutch, the Germans. They had different approaches. There were different outcomes. What did you find there 
and what were the driving influences for their different approaches? Yes. Um, to be frank, John, I, I, don't, I can't claim to know enough about other European empires. I know something. Um, uh, so, you know, if you, if you want an expert um, comparison, go to uh, Krishan Kumar's book, uh, Visions of Empire, um, a very good book published about uh, eight years ago. But here, here are some things I have picked up. Um, I think on the, on the negative side, I think the British were more reluctant to allow native peoples, native elites into the top echelons of government. So in India, for example, um, yes, Indians were involved in, in governing other Indians, but not, not right at the top. I have the impression the French in Africa were better at, at integrating elites into the top. And that, that, in that respect, I think the French uh, did better. Um, um, on the other hand, uh, the British uh, tended to adhere to the, the liberal principle that uh, colonies should become increasingly independent. And as, as you well know, partly because the British learnt from the American War of Independence, you can't keep tight control of colonies at the far end of the world, particularly when you, it takes months to communicate with them. And so starting with Canada in the 1860s and then Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, by the 1930s are virtually independent. I mean, they, they have, I think, common, some common defense policies. Um, and India's on the same track after the, after the First World War. Uh, so the, the model of the, the British model of empire was really a kind of relaxing into a commonwealth of nations. And that, that phrase is used as early as the First World War. Uh, whereas the French um, had a model of, of, as it were, integrating the colonies into France. And so to this day, uh, French overseas territories have send representatives to the Assemblée Nationale in, in, in France. So that, that was another, another difference. And then a third point would be, um, you know, whereas the British uh, decided to devote their imperial power in part to the abolition of slavery all over the world. So uh, yes, the British were involved in slave trading and slavery from 1650 to about to the early 1800s, but then from the early 1800s onwards, the empire for the second half of its life was committed to abolishing slavery from Brazil across Africa, India, and Malaysia. And that also included um, 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 abolishing slavery in South Africa, which the British took over from the Dutch um, around 1804, I think, because uh, the Dutch had been importing uh, slaves from Malaysia into South Africa. And for, for that reason, um, um, some Dutch uh, um, Afrikaners or became known as Boers, meaning farmer, uh, they were so uh, upset at the British suppression of slavery that they left Cape Colony, which the British controlled, and created their own uh, Afrikaner republics, uh, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Uh, so on that point, um, Dutch colonists and British uh, British colonialism differed uh, in, in terms of the treatment of, of Native Africans. And that was why when the Second Anglo-Boer War broke out in 1899, black Africans as well as uh, African-Americans tended to support the British. I think there's often an assumption that colonization involved great cruelty and violence, um, that it was about 
military takeovers, if you like, and the squashing of people. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think, as you've said, there were various motives, various different approaches taken at various times by the British. But I also wonder whether the sort of policies that different countries ran mm. reflected different ideas about yes. treating Indigenous people decently. Yes. So um, there's no doubt, John, that um, in the history of the British Empire, there's a lot of violence. But we need to put that in context because um, uh, you and I are privileged to live in parts of the world that enjoy unprecedented peace and health and wealth and security. And uh, we, we live in countries that have strong states that can afford to, to be very careful about how much violence they use because they don't have to use too much of it. But in, in the past where states, uh, colonial governments are weak, where borders are uncertain, um, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of violence. Um, but that's the, the, the past was just, it was much more insecure. And where people are insecure, they, are, they, they don't give others benefit of doubt and there's more violence. So let's just take that as read. Um, how did the British Empire compare to other empires in terms of violence? Well, uh, to take one infamous case, you've got uh, the Belgian Empire in the Congo, which uh, a colony in the Congo, which uh, was notoriously cruel to um, black Africans. Although, to be, to be fair, as I understand it, um, that wasn't actually a colony of the Belgian state. It was actually a private fiefdom of, of King Leopold. Um, so you might want to say that wasn't the Belgians' fault, it was just the king's. That's a, that's a fine point. Um, then the other um, um, allegedly notoriously uh, 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 cruel um, um, expression of European colonialism was uh, in German Southwest Africa, uh, where it is widely supposed that uh, uh, the Germans perpetrated uh, a genocide there. Now that's controversial. I have a, a, a colleague and friend to the right of me, Bruce Gilley, who has argued forcefully that that wasn't the case, but it's widely held to be the case. Um, and then you've got um, the Japanese um, in, uh, um, when they uh, invaded China, uh, famously the rape of Nanjing or Nanking, um, where no one knows how many, but several hundred thousand Chinese civilians were killed by Japanese troops. And it is notable, therefore, that um, in the Second World War, um, probably the greatest, yes, without a doubt, the greatest number of troops in the British Empire were Indian. And uh, Indian troops were all volunteers. And uh, although Indian troops were deployed in North Africa and in, in, in Italy during the Second World War, most of them were fighting the Japanese in Burma and India. And they chose to fight with the British against the Japanese. Why? not because they wanted the British to stay and rule, rule them forever, um, but they sure as damn didn't want the Japanese to rule them because they, they read the papers, they heard the, the reports of what the Japanese did in, in, uh, in China, in Manchuria. And um, 
compared to the Japanese, the British uh, were, to Indians at that time, uh, far preferable. Uh, and as I said, uh, as, we, as we discussed earlier, I don't think the British were responsible for perpetrating genocide in Tasmania or, or anywhere else. Uh, whereas it seems that uh, um, in some cases, European empires did commit genocide. So we hear endlessly that there are endless negatives about what Britain in particular has done in the rest of the world in the name of colonialism. Uh, and you've been very honest about some of those failings. Can we get a handle on the good news, the positives, as you discovered them to be? Yeah, so in the conclusion to my book, I, I, I draw up two lists of, of I, I draw up, as it were, the, the, the debit column in the ledger and then the credit column. The credit column is actually longer. Um, so here are some of the items in the credit ledger. We, we talked about anti-slavery, and this was a consistent policy uh, for 150 years for the second half of the empire's life. Um, uh, there was also the, I mean, the imposition of peace I've mentioned. Uh, uh, um, uh, Native peoples did, did benefit from the imposition of imperial authority, which subdued uh, um, warfare between, between uh, natives. There was also the, um, the establishment of the rule of law. Um, I was in Shanghai in China a few years ago and met a, a young couple from Singapore. And as soon as Daniel had introduced himself to me, he said, without any prompting, he said, we in Singapore are grateful to you, British, for the rule of law. And uh, um, another anecdote I have relative to that is um, I had a, uh, a colleague from, a Chinese colleague from Hong Kong visiting me in, in Oxford. And um, I said to him, so, uh, Ping Chung, um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about the British legacy, the colonial legacy in Hong Kong? And he said, well, you know, if, if in the um, 1950s or 60s, uh, China had been a liberal democracy, Hong Kong wouldn't look so good. But in the 50s, late 50s, uh, early 50s, um, China was in a state of anarchy and civil war. And that's why you had uh, a million or two Chinese, no one knows how many, fleeing mainland China, coming into the non-democratic colony of Hong Kong. Why? Because at least there, at least there, there was the rule of law, which provides life with predictability, and you can at least uh, um, have sufficient stability to, to flourish there. So the establishment of the rule of law was really important, very important for foreign investment. Uh, the British, up until 1929, um, I think, invested more overseas than any other European country, and investors don't invest. Uh, unless the environment is secure, because otherwise they, they risk losing their investment. So British, the establishment of rule of law, stable government, encouraged investment uh, in India and Africa and Australia and North America. And uh, not least thanks to that, um, look at what uh, the British Empire uh, 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 grew up. So the United States, um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and indeed Israel, uh, some of the most uh, prosperous, stable, liberal countries in the world, all of them uh, were progeny of the British Empire. Um, 
So I, I think there are, there are, there are, there are quite a, a large number of, of benefits that the empire uh, um, uh, conferred upon various parts of the world. Here's a novel thought. There are probably not a few people who wouldn't mind a little British rule of law today. Yes. In the sense that we hear endless condemnation of Britain in relation to the slave trade, but nobody seems to care about the 45 to 50 million slaves around the world today. Yes. It says something very profound that we want to revisit the past, whereas in fact, the story there is not as people believe it, and ignore the fact that there's a great need for people to stand up now as the anti-slavery campaigners in Britain did so effectively a couple of hundred years ago. No, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, and the, I mean, let's, let's be clear. I mean, the reason why some people wanted to focus on the sins of slavery, which were sins, um, is political. Uh, and people wanted to focus on the evils of colonialism because it is politically useful to, to, uh, as a kind of lever to, to achieve things politically. Um, but the, but the, the whole truth is, is, is altogether more mixed. Um, and I think it's, it's really important politically we get our history right. Otherwise, we're susceptible to, to false guilt and we embark on, on um, well-meaning but ill-judged policies. So let, let's get the history right. We live in a culture now where there's an extraordinary, almost self-loathing uh, of everything that we are and a quite noticeable manipulation of history to yes. support a narrative yes. that we should be ashamed of what has gone before us. Yes. And I think that is playing out very badly for young people. What advice would you give, it's a sort of a question from left field, to parents and influencers and so forth, when it comes to trying to help their children develop a more balanced approach, because it seems to be critically important to me. The point you made earlier, we're all a mixture of good and bad. Mm. It's never as simple as black and white. Mm. And if you believe it is, you fall into this terrible trap of thinking the world is just, life is just one long battle between good people and bad people. Yes, and, and, and if you believe the stories told about our colonial past, then it was nothing but a litany of racism and oppression and violence. And that has to shake your confidence in the, in, in, in the nation states and the institutions that we built. Um, everything comes under, under question because, because um, um, our states were involved in, in uh, this um, imperial oppression and wickedness. So it's really important that the whole truth be told. And the whole truth is that the British Empire, for example, did um, some very good things as well as some very bad things. Um, and so what, what advice would I give? Well, obviously, the first piece of advice I give is read my book. <laughs> because even if you don't agree with, with the, the, art, the moral argument I make, and I, I try at the end of the book to come to a, an overall judgment about the British Empire morally, even if you don't agree with that, in the course of the book, you will learn a lot about what actually happened. And part of the problem uh, today, and the reason why this, um, uh, this relentlessly negative reading of our colonial past 
has taken root, particularly uh, in the educated elite and the media institutions, is, is that no one knows the history. Yes. So, so if activists come along and say it was all racism and genocide, no one knows enough to contradict them. Uh, so my first piece of advice is, on the part of parents or teachers, read uh, um, something. Read my book. The other book I'd recommend is, is Neil Ferguson's um, book entitled simply Empire, published 20 years ago. I reread it recently. It's still good. And it's, besides, unlike mine, it's got pictures. <laughs> so do that. Uh, the, the other resource um, uh, would be the website of a body called History Reclaimed, which is, is based in this country. It's run by Robert Toombs out of Cambridge University. Or it's not a Cambridge University uh, um, um, entity, but he's at Cambridge and he runs it. And this is uh, uh, designed to get historians to write material uh, that is more balanced and provides uh, uh, the other side of the story. And there's lots of stuff up on the website. Uh, so I, I'd really recommend that uh, parents and teachers of, of history uh, look at that website, which is universally available. I'll put a proposition to you then, and just to test it. You could argue that the means by which Britain became the most powerful nation on earth, as it was for a very long time, contained some bad stories as well as some good stories and some indifferent stories. But it needs to be balanced by the reality that then Britain became the first and only empire of its type to actually abolish slavery, so far as I'm aware, and it was able to take on the role of ending it beyond its own economy and peoples because it was big and powerful. Yes. So there's yes. two sides to that one story alone. Yes, so, so Britain, um, Britain was not the first to abolish the slave trade, Denmark was, but in Northwest Europe, you have a number of, of nations that come to the view for the first time in the history of the world that slavery as such is unacceptable. And then Britain, because, because after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, Britain then becomes for a century, uh, or just over a century, the most powerful nation in the world. Britain devotes uh, a lot of its imperial power to suppressing slavery across the world. In the 1820s and 30s, the slave trade department was the largest in the British Foreign Office. Uh, around 1840, 50, the Royal Navy devoted 13% of its total manpower just to suppressing the slave trade across the Atlantic from West Africa to the Americas. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's also the fact that, um, as I said earlier, um, the British realized, well, some British realized that uh, the empire could not consist of uh, a tightly controlled, centralized uh, uh, state so that Britain tightly controls the destinies of peoples in Australia and Africa and, and North America. And so um, um, there was a recognition. And in fact, in the 1820s in, in India, Bombay and Calcutta and Madras are all governed by Scotsmen. And every one of the Scotsmen says, folks, we can't be here forever. All we can hope to do is to help the Indians develop decent government and then we should leave with grace and hopefully goodwill. And that view was embodied in the developing Commonwealth idea, as I said earlier, whereby the empire relaxes into a family of independent nations, which is what it's become. And I think that stands to, that's that kind of liberal, a, a liberal vision of the destiny of empire. And that I think is creditable. 
And then the, the last thing I'd say is, um, um, remember how the British Empire exhausted itself? 1939 to 45, doing what? Fighting the massively murderous racist regime in Hitler's Berlin. And between May 1940, when France fell, and June, uh, June 41, when uh, Hitler invaded Russia, the British Empire offered the only military resistance to Nazism, with the sole exception of Greece. And that has to say something good about what the empire had become and what, when push came to shove, what it stood for. Um, to its end, like every uh, political body, it contained both good and bad, virtue and vice. Um, but I think the fact that, uh, thanks to the moral integrity and wisdom of Winston Churchill, uh, Britain and the empire, and, and you know very well, and we British know now too, the, uh, the effort to defeat Hitler was an imperial effort. Uh, your father was in North Africa, mine was in Italy. He was mistaken for an, for an Indian because the Indian division uh, was off, off to his right in Italy, not India. It was a, it was a, a, multinational, a remarkable multinational effort. Uh, and that was devoted to defeating not only uh, um, uh, Imperial Japan, but also Nazi Germany. And that I think, if, you, if you're gonna lose an empire, I can't think of a better way to do it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's a great note to end on. We need to recognize that history can teach us a great deal, but we need to know what the history actually is. Absolutely. So. Please read my book. <laughs>